Please turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. It's in your bulletin, or you can see it in context on page 893 of the Bible in your row. We're looking at the four weeks of Advent. These are the New Year celebration of the Christian liturgical calendar. Now, it's a time when we look back to Christ's first coming in order to prepare for his second coming. And like we said last week, his second coming is also known as the parousia. And there's a theme for each of these weeks in Advent, and that's why we light a candle here on the Advent table for each week. Now, there's no magic to these themes, and you won't find any of these weekly themes in the Bible. Yet, this is a way that the church historically has tried to remind itself through the ages of what is true and what to do as a result in our particular place and time. So, uh, the four weeks are faith, hope, joy, and peace. And you will find variations of those among different traditions. But here, last week was faith, and this week is hope. And you may not catch this, but as I've prepared these weeks, I've come up with a message uh, through the sermon titles. So, last week's title was, The Son of Man is Coming. And this week's title, that you may abound in hope. And next week, they shall obtain gladness and joy. And then the last week, for he will save his people. So you'll find all the words to these titles in the passages that I'm preaching on. So, the Son of Man is coming, that you may abound in hope. They shall obtain gladness and joy, for he shall save his people. So, here now, Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13, which is God's word, eternally true. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer, the substance of our hope. Open our eyes to see hope held out to us in your word and grow it in us 30, 60, and 100-fold here today. In Jesus' name, amen. A man named Hien Pham nearly lost his hope as a Viet Cong prisoner of war. Uh, Hien Pham was a Christian minister captured when the communists took over Vietnam. 
and his jailers attempted to indoctrinate him against his Christian faith. In the prison camp, he was given a daily diet of Marx and Engels and other communist propaganda. And over time, he slowly began to question his faith. Uh, Perhaps I've been lied to. Perhaps God does not exist. Until one day, he determined that he would quit praying and no longer think of his faith. When I wake up tomorrow, this is what I'll do. And the next morning, he was assigned the disgusting duty of cleaning the jungle camp latrines. Hien Pham was losing hope. Now, you may not have lived in a Viet Cong prison, but do you know what it's like to begin to lose hope in something you've believed? Do you know what it is to question and ask yourself, was what I believe really real or not? You know, hope is an important theme during Advent especially. Uh, You know, we have historical evidence that Christ came, that he died, that he rose in his incarnation. But what hope do we have that he will come again? Doubts creep in that Christianity is a false myth, a small religion, and ultimately a hope that cannot stand. Now, the Roman church faced the same challenges to hope that we all face here today. So the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and as he came near to the end of his letter to the Romans, the theme of hope comes shining through. Paul points us backward in order to look forward. In that sense, this is a perfect Advent-type moment, because during Advent, like I said, we look back to Christ's first coming in order to strengthen hope for his second coming. So Paul looks back to the hope found in Scripture which at that time mostly meant the Old Testament because the New Testament was in the process of being written. Now, because Christ is our hope for salvation, we must know this hope that Paul describes and holds out for us. So today we're going to look at what kind of hope this is, and we're going to see it's a hope we can hold, it's a hope for all people, and it's a hope that stands in all circumstances. Hope we can hold for all people, that stands in all circumstances. So Paul begins by giving us a hope we can hold in verses 4 through 6. Now, when our, fa- uh, when our family was stationed in Germany, I traveled all over Europe with the Air Force Band, and I got to see things I never thought I would get to see. Uh, we went to France and to Spain and even to Italy, and it, one of my first amazing trips was to Pisa, Italy, home of the famous uh, Leaning Tower of Pisa. And I remember walking up to the top of that tower. I remember how odd the stairs were because of the lean in the tower. And I remember uh, the view across the Italian countryside as the sun was sinking over the landscape. Oh, being in the Tower of Pisa was a glorious moment. When I got back down to the ground, uh, I was walking through the streets, just kind of taking the beauty of this moment all in. And suddenly, I just had this very strong urge to find a way to keep the memory that I was making that day. So I looked to my left, and there was a street vendor selling little trinkets. And for two euros, I got a little statue of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and the nearby Duomo. Uh, The statue fits in the palm of my hand, And today, it sits on a shelf in my living room, along with trinkets of about the same size and value uh, from all the other places I got to see when I was in Europe. Now, sometimes my memory of going to those places gets a little hazy. It's almost like it was a dream that I ever went to any of them. 
But when that happens, I go to that shelf in my living room, and I look at and I pick up one of my little trinkets. And when I hold it, I remember I actually bought this thing at the base of the actual Tower of Pisa. You know, it's a memory that I can hold. And when Paul talks about hope coming from the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures in verse 4, he's talking about a hope you can hold, almost as literally as I hold my little travel trinkets. My trinkets have substance and weight. Their shape in my hand reminds me of the reality that I experienced. Now, my trinkets point to the past, but hope points to the future. So, you can't have trinkets of hope like my trinkets of travel, but you can have something of substance and weight, the shape of which moves your mind and heart toward a promised future reality. Paul says that is what the scriptures are. They are travel trinkets of future hope. So, like my trinkets, the scripture has substance and weight. But unlike my trinkets, the scriptures are not cheap relics. Paul tells us that the scriptures from former times were written to teach us, and from their teaching we derive encouragement and endurance, which are the weight and substance of hope. So now, if I look at my Italian travel trinket, and if I took it and passed it around the room to you today, and, and all of you touched it, none of you would feel the things that I feel when I touch it. And why? Well, because you weren't there with me at the tower. You didn't experience what I experienced. But what if, what if we had all been there together? And what if all of us had come down from the tower and gone down the street and had the same thought and bought the same travel trinket? Now that would be a different experience then, wouldn't it? So now we're coming to what Paul means in verse 5 when he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement give you united togetherness, both in mind and voice. Because you see, when you encounter God in the scripture, which is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us, then for everyone who has encountered the God of the Bible there, it's like they all went on the same trip to Italy and they all have the same travel trinket. So, when your own encounter with God seems like a dream and far off and not very real, it is the scripture, their weight and substance, that remind you of the future hope promised in God. Now, I want you to hold on to three things that fall out from these first two verses. Some of them are obvious and some of them are less obvious. Let's connect them together. So, first, hold on to the fact that scripture does not mean whatever anyone wants it to mean. In other words, it's possible to interpret Scripture incorrectly. When Paul prays for God to give the church one voice, he says that it should be in accord with Christ Jesus, and also that the church will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice according to Christ Jesus. Now, this may sound a little negative if I say this, but, but sometimes I think we just ignore what's common sense. Uh, where Christians do not have a unified voice on the encouragement, endurance, and hope found in Scripture, it's very obvious someone is mishandling something. Now look, on the other hand, it's not about rigid uniformity, but it should be according to Christ Jesus. So, first and foremost, Scripture cannot mean whatever anyone wants it to mean. Second, not only is it uh, according to Jesus Christ, 
But the hope we have from God that's revealed in the Scripture should give us one voice to glorify the Father. So if your study of Scripture causes you to look down on others, or if your study of Scripture is simply about making your life more comfortable, or if your study of Scripture ultimately is about anything other than bringing glory to the Father, then we've gotten off track. Why does the Scripture speak of justice for the poor? Because justice for the poor glorifies the Father. Why does the Scripture speak of the Son? Because the Son glorifies the Father. Why doesn't Scripture give us one plain, clear-cut method of parenting? Because there is more than one plain, clear-cut method of parenting that brings glory to the Father. But if your parenting does not have as its end goal glorifying the Father, then your parenting is not based on the encouragement and endurance of the Scriptures. Now thirdly, and I think this one falls out from the other two, and this one is is the most simple. Verse 4 is the purpose statement of the whole Old Testament. Now, I love to say things to help people out with the Old Testament whenever I can, because for years, the Old Testament was the part of the Bible that gave me hang-ups. So when I tell you verse 4 is the purpose statement of the whole Old Testament, uh, stay there with me. Um, You know, I knew the Old Testament was an important part of the Bible, but I didn't know how to use it. But this verse says the Old Testament is there to teach us and give us encouragement and endurance that points us to the hope of Christ. The Old Testament points us forward, so we have to read it forward. Verse 4 is the purpose statement of the whole Old Testament. So the scriptures here give us a hope that we can hold, but secondly, the scriptures also give us a hope that is for all people, and that's in verses 7 through 9. So we, we now have talked about the purpose of scripture being united togetherness of the church glorifying God. But you might stop and ask me and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you said the church? Don't you mean the Israelites? Because you've been talking about the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was written to Israel. How did you get to the whole church tag? Well, I would say that it's because I followed the trail of glory in these verses. We saw glory in verse 6 as the purpose. And glory is there too in verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, who is this one another? This letter, we said, is to the Roman church. So if you look back over it and see that Paul is addressing not only Israelites or Jews, but also Gentiles. And and what's a Gentile? A Gentile is literally everyone who is not a Jew. So here, Paul says, Jews and Gentiles, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed each of you. And why? For the glory of God. God provides salvation through Jesus Christ, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So when Jews and Gentiles welcome each other in this salvation, it brings glory to God. So now, what's the point of that? This hope is a hope for all people. Now, Paul is going to take us to glory a third time in verse 8. He says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, which is shorthand, meaning Jews. And why did he do that? Because God tells the truth. That's the simplest way to put it. God tells the truth. He made a promise to the Old Testament patriarchs, and he confirmed that promise in Christ. 
The major promise of God to the Old Testament saints was that though they sinned, a Messiah would come and deal with the problem of sin. That is Genesis 3.15 in a nutshell. The seed of the woman Eve will come and crush the serpent's head. The Old Testament saints were promised a child, someone who would be the Messiah. And there were other promises in that line made to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Promises to David and Solomon. Promises to the prophets who came as God's mouthpiece, foretelling events and forthtelling the people about their moral situation. And Paul says that Christ is the confirmation of all those promises. Christ is the confirmation that God tells the truth. But Christ is more than the servant to the circumcised. He is the servant to the Gentiles too. He served the Gentiles for the sake of mercy so that together with the Israelites, the Gentiles would also glorify God. That's what it says in verse 9. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So now, uh, if you were a Jew... Hearing all this in antiquity, your very next question to Paul would be, where in the world did you get that idea, Paul, about the Gentiles? And that's why Paul's very next phrase is, just as it is written. He appeals to the Old Testament. Now look, I told you, I like to point things out about the Old Testament to help all of us wrap our minds around it. Did you know that the Hebrew division of the Old Testament is really in three big parts? That's why it's called the Tanakh, uh, which is a word that is basically a three-letter acronym for the three parts of the Old Testament. Um, In English, T-N-K. T is for Torah, which means law. N is for Navi'im, meaning prophets. K is for Ketubim, meaning writings. You can divide the 39 books of the Old Testament into these three categories. TNK, Torah, Navi'im, Prophets, Ketubim, Writings. And what's wild is that here Paul quotes from all three sections to talk about how the Gentiles were always meant to be included into the people of God. In other words, salvation for the Gentiles was not a plan B. Now, I'm going to say more about the specific quotations Paul uses here in a second, but are you starting to see the truth laid out here? The hope revealed in the scriptures is a hope for all people. So, I've pointed out this ancient argument that Paul is making in this ancient letter uh, to an ancient church about a particular ancient problem so that we could see something about the hope of Christ in our own modern day. Because if what Paul is saying is true for the people back then he is saying to in his own day, then we need to think about how it is true for the church today. And I'll tell you how. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give you three things that I think fall out from this. First, Christianity is not anti-Semitic. Second, Christianity is not culturally captive. And third, uh, Christianity is not for one kind of person more than another kind. So, first and quickly, Christianity is not anti-Semitic. Paul is not kicking Jews out of the church. He's bringing Gentiles in to be there with them. Now, people have used Christianity for anti-Semitic ends, and that is wrong, wrong, wrong. Don't you see? Christ doesn't burn the Old Testament. He confirms it. Christ doesn't hate Jews. He comes as a Jew, bringing them hope. 
And there's more that can be said about all of that, but uh, very quickly, I think the second thing that falls out of that is this truth that Christianity is not culturally captive. And this is what I mean. The problem in America with, with the view of how people see Christianity today is that the press seems to have characterized Christianity uh, as a religion of white Republicans, uh, since uh, there's a, a often used statistic that 80% of white evangelicals elected our current president. And depending on how you feel about the current president, that may shape your view of Christianity. Uh, if you feel negatively about the president, you may feel negatively about Christianity. And uh, that's one reason out of many why more and more people tend to think that Christianity is a white religion. But nothing for, could be further from the truth. In fact, if you think that Christianity is a white religion, I, I should introduce you to some of my African-American Christian friends, some of my Hispanic Christian friends, any of my non-white Christian friends. See, Christianity as culturally captive could, could not be further from the truth. It is amazing, given that, that we think this, or that this gets reported, given that Christianity started in the East among Jews, and then it transformed the Roman Empire. And then it's amazing, Christianity has gone to every culture on every continent, and no other world religion has actually done that. And this is, this is not just something that Christians make up. Sociologists and missiologists actually study this phenomenon. And statistically speaking, just to kind of nail this home, the average Christian today is not like me, not a 43-year-old a white American male, but the average Christian, statistically speaking, is a 25-year-old African woman. So now what falls out from this? This third thing, and this is probably the most important that we should, that we should take away. No one kind of person and no one kind of culture is any more likely to be a Christian than any other. You get it? No one kind of person is more likely to be uh, ready for the gospel than, than another. So here's my question for you. Who do you know who's looking for a hope they can hold? Who do you know who is longing for a hope that is for all people? Are you willing to invite them to this hope? Or do you mistakenly think, oh, it can't be for them? Oh, repent of that thought, friends. This hope is for all kinds of people. This hope is for every kind of person. You can hold it. It's for all people. And it's a hope that stands in all circumstances. That's what we'll see in verses 10 through 13. So one good way to learn how to use the Old Testament is to see how the apostles used it. Remember, I said uh, the scriptures can't just mean whatever you want it to mean, right? Well, here's, here's how we look at this. How does an authoritative interpreter like Paul use it? Now remember... Paul was a well-trained Jew speaking to well-trained Jews. And after he encountered Christ, he began appealing to other Jews using the Old Testament to tell them about Christ and this salvation that has come to all people. So how does Paul, as an authoritative interpreter, use these passages from the Old Testament? When you first look at verses 10 through 13, uh, the most obvious thing is that each of the passages he use, ha, uses has the term Gentile in it. 
So the next thing is maybe less obvious to us, but it would have been very obvious to rabbinical Jews of Paul's day. The passages that Paul chooses come from all across the Old Testament. In other words, Paul isn't using special pleading, uh, you know, cherry-picking a passage, but he's saying that across the spectrum of the Old Testament, the Gentiles are included in this hope. The thing I noticed along with that, the thing that I think is significant for all of us who read this passage today, is that the hope held out here both to Jew and Gentile is a hope that stands in all circumstances. So this is what I mean. The first passage he quotes here comes from one of those N passages in the Tanakh. Remember, N stood for prophets. And this first passage is from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. And this therefore statement comes from the story of David. David suffered much. He committed sins like adultery and murder, and sins were committed against him. His kingdom was stolen from him in a military coup that was led by his own son. Popular opinion went against him. But this passage where he says, therefore, I will praise, is after his suffering. It's after it was over. It's after the kingdom had been restored to him. And it's just before he speaks his very last words in life before he dies. David's hope in the Messiah, therefore, I will praise is a hope that was there as he looked back over all the circumstances in his life, including the suffering. Now, the second passage is from the Torah, one of the first five books of the Old Testament. The T, the Torah, was the the law books. And this one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, is part of a song that Moses wrote, a song that he sang, a song that Moses taught to the Israelites as they entered into a new phase of life. They entered into the promised land. And the hope of the Messiah was with God's people as their whole way of life was radically changing and a new chapter was opening up for them. The third passage Paul uses is a K passage, ketubim, that means writings. And the biggest book in this writing section, the ketubim, is the Psalms. And this quote comes from Psalm 117, verse 1, which actually is the shortest psalm. Uh, it, It only has two verses. This psalm strikes me. Uh, Because it's sort of the Twitter version of a much longer psalm, Psalm 136, the basic summary of which is, Praise the Lord, His steadfast love endures forever. Because you see, the Bible gives us long psalms to sing and pray when we need to sit and soak in it. But it also gives us this psalm, 117, as shorthand, when you're in a hurry. I call this a hurry up and pray psalm. And you know, you need both in your life. Psalms that use all the words... And this one, so you can hurry up and pray. The hope of Christ is here in the moments when you need to hurry up and pray. And the last passage Paul uses is another in passage, Navi'im, the word for prophets. The in section, the prophet, the prophetical section of the Tanakh is so big, you can divide it into former and latter prophets. And guess what? Paul used both. That in passage from Samuel is a former prophet, and here, Isaiah 11, verse 1 and verse 10, is a latter prophet. Isaiah prophesies with a view toward the end of time. 
And the passage that we read earlier today in our, in our uh, service is where this verse comes from. And it's, it's the one where Isaiah says, There will be a day when the child will play at the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine it? What would have to be true in the world if a child could play at the hole of a cobra? See, Isaiah is looking for a hope that will take us to a day when everything wrong with the world will be made right. So now, out of all these verses and the way Paul uses the Old Testament, two important takeaways. One, if you want to learn how to use the Old Testament, here, this is at least a four-week course on it. You know, go back and look up each of these passages in their original context and then sit with them until you see how Paul starts in each of those passages and then gets to the hope of Christ for mercy toward the Gentiles and the glory of God the Father. I'm telling you, this could have been a nine-hour sermon, and I've really trimmed it down to about 30 minutes. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the cookies are on the second shelf, right? Like, this, this isn't obvious on first read, but the cookies are there for you. God put them there, and you don't have to reach for them alone. That's part of why you have a pastor preaching this to you. And secondly, I want you to look at this hope that stands in all these different circumstances. I want you to start by asking, where do you need this hope today? Are you looking back over the suffering in your life and trying to make sense of it? This hope is for you. Are you crossing into new territory in life, a a new job, a new place, a new community? This hope is for you. Are you in hurry, in a hurry in life? Do you need to hurry up and pray? This hope is for you. It's a hope on the go. Are you taking time this season to look farther down the line, wondering if there's a hope that will get us to a day where everything wrong in the world is put right? This hope is for you. Where do you need hope? And who do you know that needs this kind of hope? Hope in Christ is a hope that stands in all circumstances. And hope in Christ is a hope for all people. And and that should humble you and I. Because it means that neither of us are more deserving of it than anyone else that we meet, no matter who they are. And not only should it humble us, but it should thrill us because even though none of us deserves it, Christ in his love has come to give it freely. Wow. It's a hope you can hold because of the weight and substance of the scriptures. Uh, Do you remember Hien Phan that I started with? That next morning, the day he chose to quit his faith, the day he was assigned the dirtiest and most disgusting job you could get in a jungle prison camp, cleaning the latrines, that day he came across a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. And after having only been allowed to read communist propaganda for so long, he hurriedly grabbed the paper, he washed the filth off of it. And in the night, when no one could see him, he retrieved the paper and read the words at the top of the page. Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him 
For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hin wept. He knew his Bible. He knew that there was not a more relevant passage for someone on the verge of losing their hope. He cried out to God asking forgiveness because that was supposed to be the first day that he wasn't going to pray. But evidently God had other plans for him. That thing that his tormentors were using for refuse, the scriptures, those could not have been something uh, more treasured to Hien. You see, Hien again found his hope in the weight and substance of Scripture, the salvation for all people that stands in all circumstances. And you can find that same hope in those same Scriptures that point to that same man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Merciful God, who sent us hope through your prophets and apostles, whose words are preserved in Scripture, point us to repentance and prepare the way for our salvation Give us hope in your grace that we can forsake our sins and greet with joy the coming of Jesus, our Redeemer, the hope for all people in all circumstances who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.